Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which teaches us. We thank you for your word by which it teaches us. And we thank you for teachers uh, who study your word and to help us understand and to learn it. We pray that you give us the grace to apply the doctrine that we learn and that you bring to memory that doctrine in times of need. We praise you and we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. You might be thinking, oh no, we're going to be here for two hours or three hours. That was a lot of verses. This is going to be a part one and a part two. We're only doing the first three verses this time because we've got some doctrine to lay down before we can get to the application. Now, if you remember this from a few months ago, we have an outline for this book. And we are finally moving from the first part, life, light, and love, into the second part, anointing, abiding, and acting. And since this is a new section in this book, uh, we are going to take a minute to show why it's a new section, how it's a new section, what we're doing with it. First John is characteristically very difficult to make an outline for. So you'll notice that we're right in the middle of John's exhortation to the fathers, the young men, and the sons, and yet we are switching gears a little bit because John is kind of moving out of the applying of doctrine to adding on some new doctrine. So we are this morning looking at the Antichrist spirit and the anointing spirit. We're going to see this distinction that John makes. Remember, John is very good at putting opposites together, truth and lie, light and darkness, life and death, truth and lies. And here we've got another one, the Antichrist and the anointing. The main idea for this morning, the most basic need of a new believer is doctrine. Without this, there is no growth. There is no, or there is great ability to be deceived. All believers are better positioned to understand deep truths about God than any single unbeliever. Remember, John is exhorting them not to listen to these unbelievers who are coming in and teaching them different things. They're being led astray by false doctrine, and he says, they do not have the capacity to understand what you understand. So why would you follow after them? So our part one that we're going to deal with this morning is just this number one, these two spirits. We're going to look at them, define them, see what their source is. We'll do a little bit of analysis of the structure of the book to see where this fits in the whole grand scheme of things, why John is switching gears here. You remember in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, we looked at the importance of doctrine for fellowship. This was John's foundation for this book. This was his starting point in which he gave us his purpose statement for the book so that we would have fellowship and that in fellowship we would have joy. And remember that doctrine that he stressed so much was the doctrine of the incarnation. We need Jesus Christ to be both God and both man, and indeed he is. This is a foundational doctrine, a doctrine that we cannot grow in the spiritual life without. Then he moved on to the importance of truth for fellowship. This is kind of the same as doctrine, but we need it to be honest specifically about one thing, and that is our inability and his ability. If we shift our trust from ourselves to him 
in walking the spiritual life, then we are rightly aligned with him to grow. So we need to be honest about our own inability and his ability. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. He is able to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then he moved into the importance of love for fellowship. And at this point, he took a turn and went into not just fellowship, not just how to maintain relationship with God, but how to enjoy that relationship. We moved into intimacy with God. And that love is necessary, not just between the believer and God, but between believers. Because the believer who does not love his brother is not in a proper relationship with the father. Well, and then we moved into the importance of doctrine for growth. John is moving into another spiral in his layering of doctrine. Not only do we need this to maintain fellowship, to have intimacy, we need it to grow. We need doctrine if we have any hope of sanctification, of growing more in practice, the truth which is our position in Christ. So we want to focus again, verses 12 through chapter 3, verse 3. He starts with the technia, those who are born of Christ, children by relationship, not by age or maturity. Then he addressed three different groups of maturity, the fathers, those who are mature, and are able to help mature others, the young men who have learned a lot of doctrine and even know how to apply that doctrine but need exhorting in order to stand firm in that doctrine, and then the children, the new believers, but the believers who are ready to start learning doctrine. They need to learn true doctrine. They need to learn the word of God. They need not to be deceived. And that is the purpose of the paragraph that we are now in. We're now in verses 18 through 27 of chapter 2, which deals with the children. John laid down a pattern in verse 13, not just fathers, young men, and children, but in each case he said, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. And then he switches verb tense, goes back to the aorist, which is just a summary tense. And he says, I wrote to you. This isn't talking about a previous letter or what came before. This is just shifting the focus away from the writing and onto the content. Shifting focus away from his action of writing and onto what he has to say for the children. And that indicates to us that this is kind of his point. This is what he's getting at. Yes, he has an exhortation for the young men. That's basic knowledge that they should know already. This is his warning. Now, so far, we've had the address repeated to the fathers and the sons, and it came with, I wrote to you fathers, I wrote to you young men. But now he says just children. He's changing his pattern again, but he's still generally maintaining the same structure. And what happens, if you remember our Shakespeare principle, what happens when a writer changes something? Our ears should perk up. We should pay attention. They're getting at something very important. He's still going to keep it with his structure, though. He is going to speak to these children, these children who are ready to receive doctrine. And then he's not just going to summarize and say, I wrote to you, but he's going to say, I didn't write to you for this purpose, but I did write to you for this purpose. 
Those are going to be the applications that we'll look at next week. This time we want to look at the laying down of doctrine in verses 18 through 20. This is a theme that is consistent through almost every New Testament writer. Some of them skip the young men who need some exhorting just to stick with the doctrine that they know. But all of them deal with teaching new believers. Hebrews 5.12, for example, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be fathers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the very basic things of Bible doctrine. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil, spiritual growth, maturing in doctrine, and applying that doctrine to their lives. 1 Peter 2. Therefore put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Not so you can grow and be more saved, but grow into what is available to you at the moment of salvation. Grow into using all that has been gifted to you by the Spirit the moment you believed. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so that is his point, speaking to these children, these paideia. Now this is different than the technia. Remember, the technia is children by relationship. This is children by age or maturity. The paideia, though, were not newborn infants. They were kids who have the capacity to learn. A better translation for this, especially to distinguish it from technia, might be kids. I've got a three-year-old nephew. He's a paideia. He's learning a lot right now, but he doesn't have a good grasp on the world yet. He's getting there. He has all the capacity to learn, but he has to layer on basic information after basic information after basic information in order to build a network of understanding. So these paideia, these are new to the faith and very able to learn because of what the Spirit has done in them to make them capable of understanding the spiritual things, giving them the mind of Christ. But he does have a warning. These children who are so adept at learning might learn the wrong things. They might be seduced not by temptations of the world, but by deceiving teachers, by false doctrine. They might be led astray early on in their faith. We have an interesting statement here in verse 18. He says, it is the last hour. There's something peculiar about this, especially since he repeats it. We know it's very important to him. It forms a little inclusio, the beginning of this verse and the end. Kids, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, from this we know it is the last hour. What exactly is the last hour? For John, he uses the word hour both literally and figuratively. First John, whoops, John 4, 6, he uses it literally. 
Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied of his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour of the day was 60 minutes out of the 24 hours of the day. Another place, he says, are not there 12 hours in a day, speaking of the daylight hours. Those are literal uses of the word hour by John. But here in John 2, 4, he uses it figuratively. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This is not speaking of a literal 24 or a literal 60 minute hour. Neither is it here in John 4.23, but an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now we do the same thing in English, right? We say, what time is it? You expect a specific answer. An hour of the day, perhaps even the minutes of the day. But when you say, is it time to go? This has a durative process in mind. And this is the idea here that John is using. It is the last hour. It is time. Something is coming to an end. So we might ask ourselves, what is coming to an end? Hebrews 1, 2. In fact, Hebrews and Peter make use of the same structure quite a bit. Hebrews 1, 2 says, in these last days. Using instead of the word hours, days. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So what does the author of the book of Hebrews define as the last days? From the time that he incarnated his son, Jesus, to speak to us. The time of the incarnation began the last days. Something was ending so that something else could begin. 2 Peter 3.3 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In these last days, people would say, where is the promise of Christ's return? That is a general characteristic of this day and age, all the way from the apostolic age through now. 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. From his appearing is these last days. And when does it end? Those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the completion of our salvation, the revelation of the sons of God. This is the last days from the incarnation of Christ to the time that he takes us home. Now, why does John call it an hour and not a last millennia or a last two millennia? Because that's just not how he's looking at it. We have the benefit of a completed canon. We can look back at God's patterns throughout history and we can organize them into nice tidy charts that are not as tidy when you dig into them a bit, but they look nice and tidy on a page. We organize them easily into seven different dispensations or 12 or four, however you want to look at those dispensations. 
When we did Genesis 1 through 11, we looked at the, the dispensation of dominion, of responsibility, and of government. When we get back to Genesis, we're going to look at the dispensation of promise. These are ways that we organize, looking back on God's working with mankind. But this is not always how it has been organized, especially before the canon was complete, before the age of the church was revealed. But thankfully, we have the gospel accounts, this fantastic transition in the outworking of God's plan. And we have Jesus to relate to us, not just how they interpreted the Old Testament, but to add doctrine for the new. Mark 10.30, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. What was the present age? The age of law. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. The church was unrevealed in the Old Testament. And up until the last days of Christ's life, the church age was not revealed. It was a secret, hidden in eternity past, waiting for the revelation. To the Jewish mind, there was the present age, the age of law, and the age to come when Messiah would rule in his kingdom. And that would be in conjunction with eternal life, the last things. And so, when this unforeseen intercalation of grace entered onto the scene, and for John, this has just been around for about 60 years, compared to the expansive age of law and the eternal things to come, the church age to him being of unspecified time looks like an hour. It is just so small a time. Even 2,000 years in the grand scheme of things, it's a blip on God's radar, but it is a moment for grace. Just as Noah was given a moment for grace before the flood, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. Destruction was decreed. Because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And from that time to the flood, there was 120 years of grace. Right now, we are in that last hour, which because God is exceedingly merciful, exceedingly gracious, has lasted for 2,000 years. That should impress us with his love for the world, with his love for the lost, with his seeking the lost. You remember, we also organized these into civilizations. We had the anti-Diluvian civilization before the flood. Dominion and responsibility, and we saw how government came out of that. We saw God's pattern for how he is going to operate in the present civilization, this post-Diluvian, after-the-flood civilization. And so, in the time of law, or just after law, they had government, they had promise, and they had law. And grace was just the tail end of that. The one thing that came between them and the kingdom of God. And so looking at it from their perspective, this age of grace was but an hour. And the last hours at that. Now we might find it interesting that as John is exhorting 
These Christians in their present day and age, in probably about 90 AD, to live a spiritual life. He's telling them to focus on the here and now. But notice, he never takes his eyes off the future. He never takes his eyes off the promise, and he's building up towards a climax here. In 1 John 2.8, we remember, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This has an idea of looking into the future. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away and also its lusts. This is the last hour. 1 John 1.18, 1 John 2.28, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And it'll climax in 1 John 3.2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, I really enjoy driving, and I'm young enough that I still remember learning how to drive. It was more than 10 years ago now, but when I first started driving, I had a real hard time staying in my lane. I liked to merge lanes, and man, I freaked out when another car began to pass me. And I remember driving down a road in Vashon that's pretty long called Wax Orchard, and mom telling me, this is a long road, look to the end of the road and you'll stay in your lane. If you're looking three feet in front of you, you're going to crash and I'm going to die. <laughs> so this is what John is telling us to do. Keep our eyes fixed on eternity while we drive in our lane. Now, this gets us to this idea of practice and position in the Christian life. You see, our position in Christ is firmly secured the moment we believe. We move from being in the cosmos system to being in the heavenlies, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. This is our position. This is a truth about us that is firmly fixed at the moment of salvation, where we move from being lost to being found. But we are still awaiting the full revelation of what that salvation means when our position is perfectly coinciding with our practice, when we are given new bodies, when we are face to face with the Lord. And so we live in this very unique point in time where we have the capacity by means of the empowering Holy Spirit to live sanctified lives to live according to what is positionally true of us. And how do we do that? We do that by keeping our minds on the glory to come. We keep our minds firmly fixed on his promises so that when life seems a little rough now, we can say, like Paul said in Romans 8, it does not compare to the glory to come. And so in this present age, there is a bifurcation that the Christian can experience, either continuing to live in the flesh or opting instead to live by means of the Spirit.
The problem is the spirit of this age is dead set against Christians living in the spirit. See, once a believer is secured in his salvation, Satan cannot take him away from that future glory. But you know what he can do? He can destroy his present experience of it. And so all of his guns aimed at the Christian are aimed at his spiritual life, are aimed at his walk. He wants to take away sound doctrine from the believer so he has no capacity to grow. And if he misses and the Christian grows, he throws every temptation under the sun at him to try to steer him off course. This is the enemy that we fight today. And we fight it not by our flesh, but by the spirit. As that great pattern in Ephesians goes, we are seated with Christ. We sit. Therefore, we have the ability to walk in the spirit. And when we begin to be attacked, we stand firm in the spirit. Sit, walk, stand. That is the Christian life. In verse 18, though, we have John's reason for why he says the last hour is here. And it might not be exactly what we expect. He knows that because, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Now this has become a very popular title for the coming man of sin. I guess we know him as the Antichrist. This really is the only time in scripture where this name is mentioned. When John writes the book of Revelation, he doesn't use this name again. In fact, I try not to use this name where possible either. It's just an alliteration of the Greek term. And it has two meanings. And it has to do with the utility of this Greek particle anti. It can mean two different things. It can mean a substitute to put in place of someone else. To put in place of Christ is the Antichrist. You see that from Daniel 9.26, this Antichrist that they expect. This one who will stand in the place of the Messiah and call himself God. Daniel 9.26, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, the true Messiah. Not the Antichrist, but the Christ will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. These two are put in opposition here, way back in Daniel. They expected this Antichrist to come. Second Thessalonians 2.3 Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And when John introduces us to this antichrist, this false messiah. In Revelation, he calls him a beast. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. This one who will stand in the place of Christ and call himself the Christ. The usurper of Jesus. But there is another one with him, 
Revelation 19.20 tells us, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. There's another meaning for anti, and it means in opposition. And that's how John is using it here in verse 18. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have appeared. Now, yes, there have been false messiahs throughout the last ages, but generally the spirit of the age has been opposed to Christ. Against this anti, against Christ. So we have in this Antichrist title both the idea of the false messiah and the false prophet. And really, anti as a substitute or anti as an opposition has the same idea behind it. Because when you substitute the true Christ, you are opposing him. And this is one idea in John's doctrine. You have the substitute trinity. Satan's effort to take the world. And they are opposed to the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the true Messiah, and the Spirit. That is the Antichrist that they are anticipating. This union of the false Messiah and the false prophet, who will lead many away from the true Messiah who has the power to save them. And it will lead them into destruction. But the spirit of the age has already begun. It will ramp up in the days of the tribulation period when the man of lawlessness is revealed. But the spirit is already at work today. Even now, many antichrists have appeared. Now this draws perfectly from the doctrine that we laid down last week this doctrine of the cosmos. You see, there are two opposing wills. There are two kingdoms which we can give our allegiance, either the cosmos system or the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom is dominated by the will of the sovereign, dominated either by God's will or by Satan's will, which is in opposition to God's. When our wills are not subject to God's will, we are operating apart from him and within Satan's cosmos system. The frightening thing about this verse is Christians, as well as unbelievers, can be swindled by Antichrist doctrine, by the doctrines of the cosmos system. A Christian can be part of these antichrists that have appeared. He cannot lose his salvation, but he can teach false doctrine. He can believe false doctrine. He will not grow. He is not accessing the spirit and the spirit's teaching, but the cosmos and the flesh's teaching. And let's look at where these apostates come from. Where does this antichrist spirit stem from? Because this is the real problem. 
Not that non-Christians are coming into the community of Christ in Ephesus, but that those who either profess Christianity or who are Christians and have departed from the truth of sound biblical doctrine are teaching the young ones and leading them astray. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now that's a garden path sentence if ever I've seen one. John is making a few plays on words here. And I think also trying to compete with Paul for long sentences. But what is he saying here? John likes to use shorthand. John has a lot to write and not much time to write it. Once he's laid down a doctrine, he expects that you've learned that doctrine and he can reference it with a few words. So I've supplied some of that shorthand here. 1 John 2.19, they, being the antichrists, went out from us, the apostles. They were not really of us doctrinally. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, breaking fellowship, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. John's making use of a preposition, ek, which gives the source. His play on words is between their physical source and their spiritual source. They are accessing a different source than the apostles are. Not the spirit and the teaching of the spirit, but they are accessing the world and the teachings of the world. We have that juxtaposition in biblical language as well. In 1 Corinthians 2, we can learn the deep spiritual things of God. But in Revelation 3, Jesus, through John, warns the churches that they are learning the dark, deep things of Satan. And they are calling it the things of God. Now, some people complain about this verse and say, wait, Christians are supposed to stay together. Actually, they don't complain about this verse, but they complain about Christians separating and breaking fellowship. This verse kind of sets that straight. The ones who break fellowship are the ones who depart from the truth. I tried my hand at making a meme this week. Probably not that successful. But we have apostate Christendom sinking into the Atlantic because it crashed into false doctrine. And when all the denominations split off from this one group, those on the boat start yelling, hey, wait a second, Jesus told us not to separate. Get back here. Get back on this sinking ship. So what's John saying to them? Why did you separate from the truth then? This is where our unity is. Remember, fellowship, the fellowship of the church, is not a social club. It is fellowship with God the Father. And if that is broken, then we cannot have fellowship with one another. Fellowship is already broken when you separate from the truth. And it is the responsibility of each individual believer and each local expression of the church to stand firm on truth, to stand firm on doctrine, not to separate from the, tr 
from the truth in order to stay physically present together with other Christians. But if those have departed from the truth, you have to let them depart. Pray for them, pray for their restoration to truth, but do not depart with them. This was a common problem in the apostolic age. This was not unique to John's writing. Luke warns us of this in Acts 15, recounting a story of Paul. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. What was the issue? Some came out physically from the apostles, from the location of Judea, where the apostles were congregated, and brought doctrine as if it were from the apostles into various congregations, but it was false doctrine. It was salvation by works. It was salvation by law-keeping. And Paul and Barnabas had great dissensions and debate with them. They had broken fellowship. They had departed from the truth. Whether or not they had believed it from the beginning was irrelevant. At this moment, as they were teaching, they were not abiding in, in true doctrine. This is the whole point of 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Someone had written the Thessalonian church a false letter, claiming to be Paul, or perhaps claiming his authority, but I think they claimed to be him. And Paul writes them 2 Thessalonians to correct that error that was brought in by one claiming to be from the apostolic group. Paul writes, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. First Thessalonians had a lot of doctrine about the rapture, that they would be taken up before the tribulation came on this world, that they would be spared the judgment. And then someone else wrote them a letter saying, no, you're already in the tribulation period. You're in the day of the Lord. You're in the day of judgment. And so they started to worry because they did know Paul's doctrine from 1 Thessalonians and from when he had been there teaching them that they would be spared from that time. So what is the natural conclusion when false doctrine is mixed with proper doctrine, confusion, and loss of assurance as well. Because if they are in the day of the Lord, what does that mean to them? That the Lord did not come back and get them, and perhaps they were not saved. Introducing false doctrine is a dangerous game. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, remember, messing with the word of God, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I am afraid that you will abandon proper doctrine. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom, you have, whom we have not preached, 
or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. They love false doctrine. This was a big problem in the Corinthian church. The letter of 2 Corinthians is a lot less harsh than 1 Corinthians, but this is one of those scathing remarks. He is warning them because they demonstrated in the previous letter that they love false doctrine. They eat it up. He is warning them the same way John is to stay the course, not to entertain false doctrine. And this false doctrine can arise from within the church or from without. And it comes from corrupt desires. First Timothy 6, a letter by Paul written to a pastor, and interestingly enough, a pastor to which church? The church of Ephesus, the same church Paul or John was ministering in. He is warning him that if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. John's a lot less harsh than Paul in his choice of words. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil, suspicious. He's living in the world. He is being led astray. You see, it's important for the young men to run without falling into the lusts of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the prideful, uh, what is that? The boastful pride of life. Because they have a load of doctrine that they've learned. They might be recognized in their local congregations as some who understand God's word. And when they are seduced away by the world, they will be seduced in their understanding as well. They will come up with all kinds of wacky, crazy ideas about what God's word teaches, and they will come back and teach it to the flock. And they will eat it up. These young men that we learned about last week are trains that can be derailed. And the issue is, when one car derails, it often derails the whole train. And so, both the young men and the children are warned. The young men warned not to fall into the lusts of the world, because that will lead to false doctrine. And the children not to listen to them if they fall off the tracks. 1 Timothy 6, 5, and constant friction between men of depraved mind, depraved of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This was their corrupt desires. We can use this to make ourselves rich. And man, hasn't that tactic been taken time and time again in the church? This is a great money-making scheme, isn't it? But godliness actually is a means of great gain when? when it is accompanied by contentment. Greed and lust and envy, the pride of life. 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We have to keep our minds on eternal things. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This will be a terrible life if you are born again of the Spirit and you live in the world. If you live by means of the cosmos system. Why? Because you are an enemy of the world. You are an enemy of Satan. He wants you derailed. He wants you off those tracks. And he wants you to bring as many with you as you can. He wants to ruin the wonderful riches of grace afforded to the believer at the moment of salvation. And so Paul warns, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The security afforded by heaven not the security of the world. God is not here to give us security in worldly things. But we have been given the greatest gift of security in him. And this sustains us for this life because we know that this is a passing moment. This is not the last millennia. This is the last hour. This moment will go by in a flash. And what will we have in eternity to show for it? Bitterness towards everything in the world that we wanted that we didn't get? Or our joy made complete? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is your position. Make it your practice. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You were saved, and you were saved by sound doctrine, faith alone in Christ alone. Continue in that sound doctrine. As you grow and as you add more doctrine to it, don't make a doctrine of a different sort, but doctrine of the same sort taught by the same Spirit. Because who was it that convinced you of sin, righteousness, and judgment? It wasn't the world that taught you these things, the Spirit did. And that led you to salvation. When you believed that your flesh could not save you, but that Christ had already saved you. And then that became your position in him. So continue to be taught by the spirit and not by the antichrist spirit. And so perfectly then John leads into their security. They don't need these antichrist spirits, these spirits of the world, teaching them worldly things as if they were godly things because they already have the anointing of the spirit. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all have known the truth. This anointing is the Greek word charisma. We get the English word charisma from this. Things anointed in the Old Testament were sacred objects, especially used in the temple. 
priests were uh, anointed for their tasks. Prophets were anointed, kings were anointed, and they were anointed once for the purpose of establishing their ministry, either in the temple as the mouthpiece of God or as a ruler on God's behalf. An anointing was given to prophets, priests, and kings to symbolically set them aside for their duty. They were anointed physically with oil to symbolize what was true about them on the divine sphere. The symbolism pointed to a divine invisible reality, divine empowerment for their task. Our anointing gives us the capacity to function in the Christian life. Perhaps this gives us deeper understanding here in Revelation 5.9. When we look at all that was completed by the death of Christ, we see that it goes beyond just salvation. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth when he tells all these believers that they have an anointing from the Holy One. He is telling them something about their future destiny as well as their present reality. He is teaching them that they are training for reigning. But this is also a play on words. John uses a lot of plays on words in his writing. This charisma comes from the same word as Christos. In fact, Christ or Messiah are just the Greek and Hebrew words for anointed one. Because Jesus as well was anointed for his task. John 1.32 tells us, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. He meno upon him. He abided on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This was a different kind of baptism, a different kind of immersion than had ever taken place in history. This was something brand new for the last hour. Luke 3.21, we see the physical side of what John saw, the spiritual side. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then it quickly gives us Jesus' genealogy to show us his rightful place in the plan of God. And then immediately after his baptism, what do we see? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And it was by means of that Spirit and the Word of God that he withstood the devil in temptation, not by means of his flesh and the Word of God, but by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit operating in him by depending not on his own will, his own power, but on the power given to him by God. Because remember, he was incarnate. 
He came to share in our flesh. And so God empowered him, not by the power of the second person of the Trinity, which belongs to him already, but that he divested himself of that power and God bestowed on him power from the third person of the Trinity, power by means of the Holy Spirit to set for us a precedent to show us all that Jesus Christ has given us in Holy Spirit baptism by making that available to all and indeed by giving that to all who have believed in this age. We are empowered by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And we must depend on that Spirit instead of our flesh. And that brings us to the third play on words that John has here. Not only do we have a charisma from the Holy One, and not only is that Holy One Christos from this Greek verb Christo to, bat, to anoint, but there is also the anti-Christos, the anti-anointing, an anointing from a different source, a false Messiah or a falsely anointed one. That falsely anointed one who gets his power from a different source. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power. Satan and his throne and great authority. Who anointed the false Messiah? But Satan, the one who sought to be God in place of God. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. A false resurrection. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. The Antichrist opposed to the Christ. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. The cosmos system has its anointed one. And it rejected God's anointed one. In John 5, 43, Jesus speaking to many unbelievers says, I have come in my father's name. I have come on the authority of God, the father, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. That is a chilling statement. What is the source then? Acts 10.38 You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Who anointed Jesus but God the Father? God the Father anointed God the Son by means of and with the Holy Spirit. So Christ, the Christos, was or had the charisma from God. Second Corinthians one twenty one. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. God has also given us the charisma, the Holy One, God the Father. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
And so this is kind of the point. Remember, John draws most of his doctrine from the upper room discourse. John 14 through 17, where Jesus tells his disciples in revealing to them for the first time doctrine about the church, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That is another alos, another of the same kind, another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, and he promised that when he ascended up into heaven and took his place beside the Father, that he would send the Spirit. And since the Spirit is here, we know that he is seated at the right hand of his Father, advocating for us on our behalf. Earlier in his ministry, he had promised this. John seven thirty eight, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that's a bit of a veiled statement. So John interprets it for us. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, a future construction. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It is given to us by the Father on the basis of Christ's finished work. And what is the result? You all have known the truth. Remember, that was the issue going back to 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11. Those who claimed to know truth, but did not truly know it, because they come from the cosmos system, and their source of doctrine is the cosmos system. But these have a different source. It is the word of God operating by the teaching and illuminating ministry of the Spirit. We have a new capacity for knowledge because of the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans, Christ says. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And that day came at Pentecost. And they were firmly in that day when John wrote his first epistle. They knew by means of the Spirit, these spiritual truths. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, goes on to ask, What has come about that you would disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Well, the simple fact of the matter is, he can disclose himself to us, and he can't to the world, because the world simply cannot understand. They do not have the Spirit within them teaching them. Now, the Spirit does not teach us brand new things that have never been learned or taught before. It teaches us application of doctrine. It teaches us to understand what we learn as head knowledge in Scripture, to make it spirit knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, when I come to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
This is Paul talking about the simplicity of the gospel message. He came with a very simple message. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, unbelievers can understand what the Bible says, but it cannot learn the depths of what it means. The Spirit teaches us what it means. In fact, some of the best commentaries are written by unbelievers because they deal simply with the text, exactly what the Word says. In fact, there's this one where the preface, it's actually a book on Galatians, the preface says, essentially, I don't believe any of this, but this is what it's saying. He's not influenced by false doctrine in the word because he doesn't believe any of it anyways. His only prerogative is to explain what the text says, and he can do that. But he obviously has no understanding of what it means because the spirit has not taught it to him. And Paul goes on to explain that here in 1 Corinthians 2. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, those who are depending on the Spirit. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Our flesh cannot search those things, but the Spirit can and does, and the Spirit can teach them to us. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? My dog has no idea what's going on in my head. She understands sometimes where I point and what some tones of voice mean. But she does not have the mind of a man. She cannot understand my thoughts. And we do not have the mind of God in our flesh. How can we even hope to understand his thoughts? Unless he is given the Spirit and teaches us by means of the Spirit. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? That is what the charisma does. That is what the anointing is. It is the power of the Spirit operating together with our intellect. And it's on that basis that we all stand on a level playing field. No matter what our IQ in worldly wisdom, 
We all have the spirit to teach us spiritual wisdom. He is our IQ in spiritual things. Every single person has the capacity to learn and understand doctrine because the spirit teaches it to us. And the spirit is a perfect teacher. And he will begin with the milk of the word, laying down basic and simple principles of doctrine before you can hope to understand the deeper things of God. But it is there and ready to be taught to you. If only you will submit to the word of God and understand what it says and not what you want it to say in the flesh. Now I have to end here a quote by a man named R.B. Theme. It's a little long, but it is a fantastic quote. And it comes from a little booklet called Better Things for Christmas. I know it's not quite Christmas yet, but I love this little booklet. And it talks about how every day for the believer is Christmas. Because we have been given the most amazing gifts. And they are ready to be opened every single morning. We don't have to wait for Christmas. And so right here he writes, Limited human IQ does not hinder God's plan and provision for the believer. He has furnished the grace apparatus for perception. Now he is going to explain what a grace apparatus is by which every believer can learn and apply doctrine. Basically, the grace apparatus consists of the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher who exegetes and teaches Bible doctrine, a local church for the communication of doctrine, the completed canon of Scripture as the source of doctrine, the filling of the Holy Spirit as the enabling power to learn doctrine. If every day is to be Christmas, then it is dependent on your daily use of the grace apparatus. Finding the right pastor teacher and local church where doctrine is taught, being filled with the spirit by means of the rebound, which is confession of sin, which we saw in 1 John 1.9. If you fall out of fellowship, confess that sin and enter back into fellowship. Learning Bible doctrine, believing and transferring doctrine to the right lobe where it can be stored, Building divine norms and standards and applying doctrines as wisdom to experience. You see, we don't just learn doctrine for head knowledge, we learn it for application. And when we lean and depend on what God has taught in his word, we have power for this life because that power is given to us by the spirit. When you do this, you will grow a Christmas tree inside your soul. You will be grace-oriented. You will have a relaxed mental attitude free of mental attitude sins. You will have the capacity to love God as well as people. You will have mastery of the details of life. And at the top of your tree, you will have that ultimate decoration of the soul, sharing God's own happiness, his joy, and that glorifies God. And that is the point of 1 John, remember. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. In conclusion, the most basic need of a new believer is doctrine. Without this, there is no growth. There is great ability, however, to be deceived. All believers are better positioned to understand the deep truths of God than any single unbeliever because we have the Spirit to teach us. But understanding comes from the Spirit, not the flesh. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that it has filled us and that we do not need to be filled by the spirit of this world. We thank you for sound doctrine. We thank you for your word through which we can learn it, your son by which it was given to this world. We thank you for all that has been given to us on our account by the riches of grace in Christ. We pray these things in the praise of your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.